everybody said amen have a seat again welcome to church we're going to get started we have a lot of ground to cover and again if you weren't in here right when we started i just want to say again happy father's day um, we're going to build a case as to how significant this role is uh, not only in your life not only in your family's life but really at new life and in the community uh, I have some new data. I've, this is, I think, my 13th Father's Day that I've preached in a row. And so, you know, there's this, after a while, you, you've kind of said it, right? There, there's some things to say, and then you've said them. Uh, but what I did, I was actually on vacation this past week, and I was reading some literature on fatherhood. And, um, and really, just the, um, one of the most bizarre places on the planet, I went to see my in-laws in the Big Apple, my, my sister-in-law and my brother-in-law and their kids, and we, we spent a week with them. And uh, has anyone ever been to New York? And I'm not talking like upstate. I'm talking Times Square. It's, you're not in Kansas anymore. Have you ever been there? <laughs> and so it kind of like sparked this. It's so different. And uh, it was Pride Month, so that was crazy, you know. And um, I didn't plan on saying that, but, but it just it made me think of how different it is in South Dakota and how you kind of for, forget that uh, you live in a place, and as soon as you leave Aberdeen, I, I leave Aberdeen on a fairly regular basis and, and go places, and I was in you know, Fargo yesterday doing a wedding, and so uh, that's not much different. That was a bad example. That's pretty much identical, uh, a little more Norwegian, but uh, pretty much identical. And so a- as you travel to these different places, you realize as soon as you leave, that no one knows you exist anywhere else on the planet. Have you ever gone anywhere else and said, I said, where are you from? And then you say South Dakota, and these Long Islands are like, South Dakota, that's like uh, four people, you know, like uh, half the population left when you left. <laughs> and I'm thinking, I don't like you already. But uh, uh, I, I, was, I was in New York, and every time I go there, no one has ever heard of Aberdeen. And so I love that because it's a reminder of the bigger picture that we don't have to stay in a bubble. We're trying to reach our community, but we're trying to reach beyond our community as well. And so uh, I was having time to reflect, knowing that I'm going to be talking about fatherhood, and then just really seeing the depravity of man in the Big Apple, and really seeing the effects of this fatherless generation that we are in, that times are rough. I was talking about an elder this morning, and we are praying. Things have changed. Things have changed dramatically, and they've changed in our community. And then you leave our community, and you see the social tragedy of some of these changes. And if I was just to take one concept with me, this is my last sermon. I'm going to be with Jesus tomorrow. Don't plan on it, but if I am, this would be the idea that I would want you to remember of me, that fatherhood is absolutely critical to the process of healthy homes and healthy churches and gospel transformation. There is nothing like it. The Bible is littered with this idea that the father is the head of the home, and then the tragedy when that doesn't take place and the social consequences that ensue because of that reality when it doesn't take place. And so we're going to get into that today. We're going to cover a few different topics. We're going to be in this literature, Disciplines of a Godly Man. If you're reading this along with us, or Disciplines of a Godly Woman, it is going to directly correlate with today's message. And so here we go. We talk about this topic with a large umbrella. The umbrella being that all of us have had vastly different experiences, potentially, on what it means to have an earthly father. 
Some of us walk into this space or listen online or listen downtown. We're live streaming downtown right now. And we've had this paradigm for parenting that is anything less than pleasurable. In fact, if we were to be honest and have testimony time, you had a terrible dad. You had a dad that was with your mom for a short period of time but did not stick around to put food on the table or emotionally support the, the family. There was no emotion. There was no concern. The idea of biblical teaching was a foreign concept, a foreign language. It was just pure abandonment. This is happening in culture around us like never before. This has been the big shift, the absent father shift. To the extent where now, here's some of the data that I told you I would cover, the majority of children born to women under the age of 30 are born without a father in the home. Many of them will not live with their fathers, but with their mother's boyfriends, and then mother's boyfriends, and then mother's boyfriends, and it's taking a toll because it's not the way that God designed it. How do you know if you have a father wound? Here's some common denominators, specifically with men. You have a great fear of marriage and family yourself, or potentially you have a rebellious attitude towards authority, or you're marked by a self-indulgent personality that sees yourself because you're a survivalist in your home as the center of the universe. Here's a big one. This is running rampant in culture today. You know you potentially have a father wound because the way you see the father is demented. You see God as feminine. Some denominations have taken their literacy and, and hymnals and erased the portions that refer to God as he or male. And they've changed that to, to eliminate that process, even though that's what the Bible actually says. The Bible always refers to God as, as he. And so maybe you had a non-existent father, or maybe your father's story is that you had a tough dad. That you define him more like a drill sergeant or a, or a football coach type of personality. There's even a bit, as you look back on it, of bullying in his personality. And you love sports because it's how you received affection from your dad. Or, or maybe you had the exact opposite experience. Maybe you had a dad, and I think there's a lot of men like this in South Dakota, and there's some admirable qualities to it, but it's also deficient. Maybe you had a dad that understood how to be tender, but was never tough. He was the nice guy that got rolled over. He was the most huggable in high school, but he had no spiritual backbone. And so maybe in those key developmental years, although he was nice, he, he just never stood up to the plate. And when you started rebelling, because I've been told uh, that sometimes teenagers do that, instead of him saying, no, uh, you know, honey, this is right and this is wrong. This is the, the type of man that you look for. This is how you plug into the local church. This is the truth. This is lies. This is the Bible. This is all these empty philosophies that you've been following. Instead of him stepping up to the plate, he was tender, but he was never tough, and you didn't have that respect for him, and so he wasn't an extreme in any way. He was just kind of there, and he never stood up and told you, I love you, but you're wrong. Or maybe you had, and this is the minority category, this is why this topic comes up over and over again, maybe your story, and stay humble about it because you're a vast minority, maybe your story is that you had a terrific dad, defined by he was faithful to mom, he gave you a Bible when you were young and you read it together, he didn't just tell you the gospel, he lived out the gospel, he was tough, but he was tender, that he looked like Christ himself, that he provided emotionally, he provided physically, he provided spiritually, he had a plan to disciple you, 
And so maybe that's your story. And so you come here today and you're excited. But what I know now, years and years into this process, is that you represent a minority. I've told you this many times, I'll tell you it again. When men cry in therapy, look at me, when men cry in therapy, the number one thing they'll cry over, they'll talk about a marriage that's wrecked and they'll get a little teary-eyed. They start talking about their dad when they were 10 years old, they break down like babies. And how you view God himself is typically a projection of your earthly father. And so we walk in here today with father wounds. And so here's what we're gonna cover and you can write things down. I'm gonna go three part, I'm gonna move fast. The three things we're gonna cover is Jesus' relationship with the Father to give you a bit of theology around fatherhood, how it looks from a perfect perspective. Is it interesting that we serve a God who is a father and it's three in one and there's son and then there's Holy Spirit and so we get to see this type of intimacy on display. So we're gonna cover Jesus' relationship with the Father. We're gonna go to the literature on the disciplines of fatherhood and then I feel like because we need to cover the gamut, I am going to spend a little bit of time at the end talking about how do you move forward from a father wound if your story is less than perfect. And so let's, let's get started. The first topic to cover Jesus' relationship with the Father. Matthew chapter three, you can turn there in your Bibles quickly. You can look on the screen. Uh, my middle child on Father's Day is covering live stream. And so any mistakes are just common Johnson mistakes that are made all the time because we hate details. Let's see if Jet gets this right. Uh, Jesus is starting his ministry. Look, he's already ahead of me. He's shaming me. Jesus is starting his ministry. He comes down to the Jordan River to get baptized by his cousin John. You know the narrative. John says, his cousin, I'm not worthy to baptize you. And look at what happens next. This is God the Father and Jesus the Son, this intimate moment, this intimate time in the Father-Son relationship. The Bible says, verse 13, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. Verse 14, John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and then you come to me. But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill the righteousness. And then he consented. Jesus is saying, there's a larger picture to this whole idea of you baptizing me. And so then he consented. Next verse. There we go, Jetty. All right. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove coming to rest on him. And so here's what I want you to see is verse 17. This is God the Father, and he's tough, and he's tender. And in this moment, in verse 17 of intimacy, he is tender, and he is expressive. And God the Father, and we need to emulate this as husbands. We need to emulate this as fathers. And verse 17 says, and behold, a voice from heaven said. If you like to underline things in your Bible, underline the character and nature of God in this verse. He says this. He says, this is my son. He says, this is my son, but he adds something to it, doesn't he? He says, this is my what? Beloved son. When's the last time you told your son you loved him? And here's something even more expressive, even more, in a sense, intimate. He says, this is my beloved son. This is the apple of my eye. This is perfection. This is the ultimate sacrifice. This is my beloved son with whom I am well what? Wake up, wake up. With whom I am well Please, this is God the Father's heart for his son. Right, chip off the old block. This is the theology of fatherhood that's shown to us in Scripture. God the Father and Jesus the Son. God is perfect. And so he gives us this perfect template for parenting. 
This is my son. In this special moment ordained by us since the beginning of time where he gets baptized by his cousin. And then the third part of the Trinity shows up and descends like a dove. This is my son who with I'm well pleased. The damaging effects that lead not only in the temporary but into years and years of repetitive dysfunction family cycles, of this not being present where the dad is too machismo to share his real feelings, is put on display in this text where God is saying, no one is more holy, no one is like me. I created the heavens and the earth. I am holy in every sense. I am all powerful. I'm the beginning and the end, but I am tough and I am tender, and this is my apple of my eye, and I am well Please, when this doesn't happen, all sorts of problems ensue. These are words of acceptance. These are words of deep affection. God the Father imparts the love on God the Son. Always intimate. Someone asked Jesus in Matthew, a few chapters later, Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, they said, teach us how to pray. And Jesus says, okay, here's the template. And now thousands of years later, we're saying this in church services all across America, the Lord's Prayer. And then he says this, pray like this. Pray like this. Our what? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Holy is your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And it starts with this idea that God is a what? God is a father. It's central to the messaging of scripture. This role of the father and the headship of the Trinity. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. And I know I'm getting redundant. I'm almost done, but I, wanna, I really want us to walk in this. And no one, no one comes to the Father except through me. But this relationship is so intimate that it's directly tied to the salvation of man and the salvation of woman. There's no one, there's no closer relationship that God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Our entire salvation is completely tied to that relationship. John 14, 9, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus refers to God as Father 189 times in the New Testament. 189 times. Jesus' last words. You guys know him? Father, into your hands I, I commit my spirit. It's, it's the last thing that he does. He's, he's going to the Father to get his cup filled. He's loving the Father. He's trusting the Father that this is this core relationship. But here's what we know, and here's where we're going to get into some data, that big responsibilities, write this down, are directly linked to big consequences. And so those things, and we talk about this in marriage stuff, those things that have the most impact for the good, and in verse order also have the most impact for bad. Those things that carry weight to them can either be a blessing or they can be destructive. And so things with big responsibilities are directly linked to big consequences. And so th this is, th there's some stats, a guy named Jack 
uh, Brewer put these stats out, and I want to read them to you. I just learned these stats. They're kind of the, the newer, fresher stats of fatherhood. That in America, here's the crisis right now. There is a new title in America that's been owned, and we are now the world's leader in fatherlessness. You know that? We are the world's leader. I think it's per capita, but we are the world's leader in fatherlessness. That tonight in America, 18.5 million children and teenagers will grow up without a father in the home. Data has no emotions attached to it. It's just raw data. It's, it's undeniable. But data tells us that fathers in the home are the key indicator of success for children across racial, ethnic, and socioeconomic groups. And so I know that people fight about those different constructs all the time. This is the undeniable reality. It doesn't matter the color of your skin or how much money you make, your ethnicity. It is an equal opportunity heartbreaker when a dad is not present. It is an equal opportunity heartbreaker. Single moms are raising children all across America, in Aberdeen, in our church, and praise God for that ministry that you have, right? Praise God for that ministry that you have as a single mom. But here are the raw stats. Approximately 80% of single parent homes are led by single mothers. 25% of all youth in America grow up without a father present. Children without a father in the home are five times more likely to live in poverty than a child in a two-parent household. Children without fathers in the home are nine times more likely to drop out of school and represent about 90% of all homelessness and runaway children. These are the stats. This is the reality. This is why the conversation doesn't die in this church. Those things that have the most impact for good, when pulled away, have the most ability to destruct. Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus, and he starts laying out this case towards the end of the letter to the church about what it looks like to be a godly wife, what it looks like to be a godly husband, and then what it looks like to be a godly parent. And he gives us this quick verse that I want to dissect as we continue to walk through these disciplines in Ephesians 6, verse 4. A lot of us have heard it, but maybe this is your first time. He says in verse 4 of chapter 6, he says this. He, father, he says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. This can also be, in some translations, uh, written as exasperate. Fathers, do not provoke or exasperate your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. And so within that, I want to break that down. It's in the literature, but I want us to all walk in this together. There are certain things, dads, on Father's Day that we need to hear. Uh, there are these fatherhoods, and the title of it is just fatherhood do nots. And Paul, Paul calls it provoking or exasperating. There, there are these do nots that need some contextualization. What are those ways? Because Paul's making this statement, and then he, and he makes this next statement. He says, when you do these things, when you do those things, the, the result is that you're going to have angry children. And if you're new to the whole counseling paradigm for, for explaining things, it's the lens that I see uh, life through because that's my training. That, that's, those are my roots. You need to know another thing about anger that I've told you this before, but if you're new, you need to hear it again uh, or for the first time. Uh, if you deal with anger, here's what every counselor, psychologist, psychiatrist knows. That's actually not the real issue. There's an issue behind the issue because anger is a surface-level emotion. If you're dealing with anger, all that anger is doing, and think about this in your own life and, you, and use it 
to kind of uh, think through whether or not I'm crazy or I'm telling you the truth, but think through this in your own life uh, about statistically, there's a portion of you that deal with real anger issues. That when you deal with anger issues, it's a surface level emotion. There's a, there's a problem behind the problem and that anger is just telling on you that something else is wrong. And what you typically find when you start unpacking that in a session is that what's really wrong is someone has been deeply wounded by an individual or a situation that they deem to be unjust or unfair. That there's a relationship that's been fractured. And so he says this, he says, how do you provoke your children to anger? Very practical ways, dads, write them down. Criticism. Everyone criticizes on a certain level, but extreme criticism absolutely exasperates and creates angry children. They resent their parents. And, and I'm just going to be open and honest with you. I'm reading these things, and we're all supposed to be doing these things together. There's hundreds of you that put this material in your hands, and you're reading it together as a church. I will tell you, as I'm reading these things, it was one of those moments where I'm like, ooh, I, I, did, I, thought, I, was be- I thought I was better than that. I'm thinking, okay, I'm guilty of this. I'm guilty of this. I'm guilty of this. And so this is something that we can walk in together, fathers. Criticism. Winston Churchill says that his dad, Randolph, was cruel to him. And history tells us that Churchill begged for his dad's attention. Churchill, if you don't know who Churchill is, he's one of the most monumental figures of the 20th century. And he's absolutely a brilliant mind. He is so pivotal in the process of getting through World War II. And he says this, he, and just try to get it. His dad was a bricklayer, okay? So try to get this in your mind. You've got the most Nothing wrong with bricklayers. Let me caveat, okay? Nothing wrong with bricklayers, but one of the most brilliant and influential minds of the 20th century. Dad's a bricklayer. How do you think that went? And those conversations, and, and Churchill's probably philosophizing and, and thinking. I mean, his IQ is just probably off the charts. Dad comes home from a 12-hour shift laying bricks and probably thinks his son is a bit of a know-it-all and annoying. I'm just, this is just conjecture. But Churchill starts resenting his father, and he later writes in his life, he says, it would have been better to apprentice as a bricklayer so I could have gotten to know my father on a better level. The literature talks about it through the lens of horses, that when you break a horse and you break a horse's spirit, you can see it in their eyes and their posture. And it's the same way with children, that at a certain point, when you always, even at your best, have a backhanded compliment, that it starts to break the spirit of your child down. These are ways that you provoke them to anger. You have distracted eyes. You have overt criticism. You have backhanded compliments. Something else you can do, write it down. You're going to see it on the screen. They can be not just strict, because I think it's wise to be strict, but you could be excessively strict. Excessively strict. What does excessively strict look like? There's this analogy that I want to share with you. I, I was going to bring in a bar of soap, and then I realized I only use liquid soap. Does anyone have a bar of soap on them? Right, that would be weird. I don't want it. it I don't want your bar of soap. But, uh, but, but here's, if, you're, if you're reading the literature, let's just walk in this analogy together. He said that how, how you handle this as a dad is that you, you want to have boundaries, and you want to have rules, and you, and you want to lead by example. But when you're excessively strict, it has the ability to exasperate your child and create this anger and resentment within them. And you wonder why now in their adulthood you, you have this relationship with tension. It could be that you were excessively strict, that, that you shut down your emotions. And it, the analogy is a bar of soap that when you're parenting your son or your daughter, specifically through those easy teenage years, 
that to have a firm grasp on it where you're, you're holding too tightly to the bar of soap. Are you, are, do you imagine this bar of soap in my hand? That when you, thank you. That when you hold this bar of soap in your hand with too firm of a grip, what does it do? It, it shoot, have you, that's why I use the liquid stuff. This drives me nuts. I was in Fargo to do a wedding. I was staying at my in-laws. I go to the bathroom. It's a bar of soap. And I thought, this is ironic. I haven't seen this in a while. And, and you hold it too tightly. And this actually happened to me because I wasn't paying attention. And it shot out of my, it shot out of my hand. Or if you get tired of holding the bar of soap too tightly, and then you have this loose grip on it, this, where you're just kind of barely holding it, what happens? It, it, just, it just slides out. That's fatherhood. If you hold too tight a grip, they shoot away. If you hold too loose a grip where you don't have a backbone and you don't stand for truth, they just slide away from you. Excessive strictness. A gentle but firm hold keeps you in control. Or maybe your issue in exasperating your son or daughter is irritability. And the thing about irritability is it always has a good excuse because your life is tougher than your kids, amen? How many of you have a teenager and they, they complain to you about how hard life is and you just, you just kind of shake your head and go, man, they don't get it. They don't get it. Because your life is way harder than theirs. And the teacher that drives them crazy is nothing compared to the boss that you want to strangle. And the 12-hour shifts at 3M that's getting longer every year. Life has a way... I need some feedback, some amens. Life has a way of beating you up, amen? Life has a way. We realize when you're a kid and you think life is so hard and all you want to do is what? What do you want to do when you're a kid? You just want to grow up. That you were the biggest fool that ever lived and that you had it right where you needed to be. And so you come home irritable because your life is hard and you tend to find the lowest hanging fruit and you take it out on them, and these little eyes and these little ears, they have elephant memories that they take into adulthood. They know that something intuitively is wrong, even though they don't understand the complexities of your life and the reality and outcome is they feel rejected. Or maybe the way that you anger your child is that you are inconsistent, that, that one day things are right and the other day things are wrong. One day the rules look like this, another day the rules look like this over here, and things are constantly changing. Put it on the screen, Jetty. And so you are dealing with, thank you, buddy, inconsistency. It's a whole idea of training a horse, that if you're not consistent with the reins, if you're sending mixed signals, if you're digging heels into their side, sometimes when you want them to do certain directives, all of a sudden, they become disgruntled because they never know what you're trying to accomplish. Never, husbands, fathers, look at me, never make a promise you won't keep. Never make a promise that you won't keep. Never tell your kids to do what you say and not what you do. Inconsistency is a critical part of the process of creating angry children that resent you later. Never set a standard in your moral fiber that's inconsistent with the messaging that you're sending to your teenagers because trust me, they will figure it out. You can't tell them not to abuse alcohol and then every social gathering, you are red-faced with a beer in your hand because the only way you've learned how to socialize 
is through having liquid courage, and then you're telling your 16-year-old, 17-year-old son or daughter, you know, you need to not go to that party, and you need to not go and get drunk, and you need to live in this way, and do as I say, and not as I do. I'm I'm not a genius, but I'm telling you through personal experience, I kind of figured out that that was a bunch of baloney. Inconsistency will create anger and resentment in your child's life. The book talks about favoritism, and favoritism is the reality of the Old Testament. That Isaac favored Esau over Jacob. And then here's the, here's the generational curse of that. Then Jacob comes along and favors Joseph over his brothers. And so you want to provoke your children to anger. Favor one of them. Here's one that's not on the screen. This is just extra, this is extra credit. I think it needs to be said. You want to create resentment and you want to create anger? Just emotionally neglect them. Ignore your daughters. And what you will find to be true is that there will be a teenage boy who will gladly fill your shoes and give them all the attention that you should be giving them. And so those are ways that the Bible talks about. These are the ways that you provoke your children to anger as father. These are the disciplines of fatherhood. Here are the do's. Here's what Paul outlines, that you're to be tender, that you're to be disciplined, that you're to provide instruction for them. And this idea of tenderness, here's where it comes from. When the Bible tells men to bring their children up, Bring your children up, this is a proverb, in the ways of the Lord, and when they're old, they won't depart from it. And I think people, I was talking to Chuck about this, people forget that that's a proverb, that's a general rule. That doesn't mean that every time you raise a child, they can never rebel. That's not the context of that scripture, if you're frustrated with the fact that your kid is rebelling. But what that is saying is this, that this word, uh, the tenderness, that bring them up, is to nourish or to feed. It's this idea of true biblical masculinity that you can tell your child certain things and you can share with them and you never miss an opportunity to be affectionate and affirming. And the beauty of this tenderness, specifically if you have a teenage daughter, is that there is a built-in standard that's even subconscious in your daughter's life where she's saying, I know what it looks like to get affection from a male who is healthy in a biblical way, and so now there's this standard that's been set in my life, and then any goofball that comes along that doesn't meet the standard, I don't have time for that person. This is a beauty of living out the gospel as fathers in our lives, that we set a standard even though we don't realize all the standards that we're setting the Bible says one of the do's is, Paul says, to discipline. And this is, this is how the definition plays out, to train up even by punishment. This is, this is my own confession. I'm gonna, I feel too hypocritical, so I'm going to say it. This, one, this one's tough for me. My wife is Italian partially, and she's tough. And so it's, it's easy for me to just kind of go, you know, I know that the kids will get away with nothing. That's been a historical pattern in our life because she doesn't put up with anything and I get to be the fun guy that's you know, jolly and taking them to a levity and go-karts and things like that. But the reality is there's this biblical role of masculinity that we need to discipline our child. That that's not just something dished off to mom because it's not the fun part of being a dad. Here's another statistic for you, that 85% of children and teens with behavioral disorders grow up without a father in the home. You see the correlation? Behavioral disorders of all sorts. Sometimes some of those diagnoses can simply mean your child is a puke. I'm just telling you the truth that they're not going to tell you in a counseling setting. Some of these behavioral disorders are really just your child is a handful. 
85% of those children diagnosed, I'm not saying all behavioral disorders are that way, I'm not saying that at all, but 85% of children with, uh, and teens with behavioral disorders grow up without a father in the home. 70% of teens in drug and alcohol treatment centers originate from homes without fathers. These are the cold, hard facts. Our role is to be tough and tender and to discipline as needed. And then the last one is this, that we give instruction defined by to place before the mind. Verbal instruction, leading by example, getting them to church, ensuring that that church experience is meaningful, that you're actually talking about this sermon when you leave on Father's Day. And that you're having that relationship, that you're being present with your child. These are the disciplines that Paul brings out in fatherhood. Here's the last piece of this. I told you I was going to cover a lot of ground. It's kind of like, and my wife was talking to me about this on the ride home from uh, our trip. She always kind of knows the rhythm now of ministry. She'll be at the second service. She'll sit in the back. She'll tell me she's taking notes. I think she just sometimes zones out, but I don't know. That's just me being insecure. But she does tend to listen because every time I'm done, if she likes the sermon, she tells me. And if she doesn't really think it's that great, she just doesn't say anything. And then I get all insecure. I've told you that before. And so she knew it was Father's Day. She knows kind of the messaging that we're going to give at New Life, that we're going in the direction of, of spiritual leaders in the home. And she says to me, and she has a dear friend who's in a tough situation in her parenting, but she says to me, what do you, what do, you do with this whole demographic now that heard all of these disgruntled statistics, these painful statistics, and what hope do you then give them? And so I want to spend the rest of the time, just this small window of time, talking about how do you deal with this father wound that's been exposed? Because the gospel is centered on hope. The gospel isn't despair. The gospel is there is a way out of all this because Jesus is the Savior. And so we don't leave church on this note where, wow, things are really bad and try not to be so bad. No, we talk about we are in Christ and we have everything we need in him and these wounds, the Bible says, by his wounds, we are what? By his wounds, let's say it together, by his wounds, we are healed, that we walk in new life and it's the name of our church. So what do you do if you have a father wound? Write this down. This affects a large percentage of us. Here's the first thing that I would say to you. What your father did is not your fault, but it is your responsibility to not repeat the cycle. This is last minute stuff after talking to my wife and being scared that I was going to fail this message. It's not on the screen. This is for you. The first thing that you understand is that what your father did is not your fault, but it's your responsibility to not repeat the cycle. Those things, here's what I know at 42 that I didn't know at 22. Those things that hurt us the most are oftentimes the same things we bring with us as adults and we push repeat. And so it's our responsibility to not just walk in these wounds and say, well, this is the way it is, or to not, it's our responsibility to not just say, boy, that was bad, but to actually have a proactive, Christ-centered plan for change. Men oftentimes, men oftentimes end up like their father, and women will often settle for someone with the same character deficits as their father. And they're probably thinking to themselves, and we say this in church, that a good man is hard to find, But a good man being hard to find that loves Jesus is no excuse to settle for less than God's standard in your life. And if you make that decision, you already know it to be true, your kids will pay the price. 
It's not your fault what happened, but it is on your shoulders if you repeat the cycle. The second thing I want to tell you is this. It's just, it's not your fault. And, and that sounds so cliche. But I, but I want to give you a little context for that idea. And I don't think I've ever talked about this in church before. It is genuinely not your fault. There's a reason we're going through this literature. There's a, there's a reason, a concrete reason that I've decided in 2022 that if nothing changes, nothing changes. That we have to do better. That we have to We have to be devoted to spiritual health in the life of this church so that we can grow and quit drinking baby milk all the days of our life. There are practical consequences to lacking spiritual discipline. It has very practical consequences in your life. And so here's what I want to tell you about your father. Maybe he's gone on, uh, he's not alive anymore, or maybe you have a superficial relationship with him, or maybe you resent him, or maybe you're angry at him. You need to know this. When I say it's not your fault, This isn't just a quick statement to make you feel better. I'm telling you from a helicopter view, not being in your situation and having a situation of my own that I've had to unpack over the years and go to counseling for myself, it literally is not your fault. Your father's absence, I hope this is eye-opening for you. Maybe it means nothing, but maybe it's eye-opening. I want you to hear this. Your father's absence is a direct result of his inability to maintain healthy relationships across the board in his life. It's not just you. That's what I mean when I say it's not your fault. It's not just you. What you represent is a spiritual discipline and your father lacks spiritual discipline. It is very difficult to maintain healthy relationships in a way that God designed for us. And maintaining and nurturing healthy relationships is a discipline that your father has not developed and it's not just you but you have been the recipient of a lot of pain as a result of his lack of character. But if you were to do a longitudinal study of his life, you will see that there are wounds in all sorts of relationships, marriage relationships, friendship relationships, work relationships. It's not a pretty picture, and you have been the person who has received the lion's share of that pain. But it's genuinely not your fault. Third thing I would tell you is this, that it is critical. If you want to heal, you have to own it. You have to own it. You have to confess what the hurt is. I don't know about you, but now as I'm getting older and balding, I have have just had to come to, to Jesus with this idea that me bearing stuff down is volcanic, and it ultimately erupts. True? It ultimately erupts. And you're saying, well, I haven't found that to be true. That's because you haven't lived long enough. In denial is your mode of operating. Verbalize why it hurts. Verbalize the expectations that have not been met. Write it down in a letter if you have to, even if the letter never leaves your house. Focus on specific things that hurt about this core relationship that's been damaged. And ultimately what you'll typically find is that the focus of your pain has to do with rejection. Focus on that anger that has manifested as a result of the hurt. You have to confess it. Christianity is all about confessing. You confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. You confess the truth of Scripture on your life. You confess the hurt that you don't want to walk in anymore. Here's another reality. If you walk in a father wound and you don't want to stay where you're at, you have to choose to forgive. That this idea of forgiveness is is holding you prisoner. 
And you have to choose to forgive your earthly father. You have to apply the gospel. You have to know what you've been forgiven for first. And then you need to say this to yourself. He who the son is set free or she who the son is set free is free indeed. And I'm going to make a conscious decision every time I feel that resentment and anger building to know the truth of God's word, to know that I've been forgiven for, to know that this is greater than what's just going on in my own life, that my father has issues, but that I have a heavenly father who loves me and I'm gonna choose to forgive because I'm forgiven. And here's another reality. You are not alone. Write it down. 18.5 million people with the same shared story in America. You're not alone. There are people that know your pain. And the thing about your pain is that it always has the capacity to serve a purpose. And the last thing I'm going to close in prayer is here's what Jesus does. Here's how we open. Here's how we close. Here's what Jesus does. In the most painful moments of his life, we talk about rejection. We rejected Christ with our sin. The Romans rejected Christ. The Jews rejected Christ. The disciples rejected Christ. He knows rejection. In the most painful moments of his life, he does something that's absolutely critical. He draws close to the Father. Jesus operated from a place of love and acceptance from the Father. When he's scared, when he's going to the cross, when he's sweating drops of blood, what does he say? He says, Abba, Father. Abba, Father. Every time Christ was rejected by man, he was accepted by his Father. Every time he was let down by his disciples, he was poured into by his Father. Every time he was hated by his enemies, he was loved by his Father. Every time his emotional bucket was drained, he was poured into by the Heavenly Father. And so these Father wounds have to go somewhere. These Father wounds have to be communicated and expressed. But ultimately, although 18.5 million people share a similar story, no one can take your pain. Look at me, I'm closing this thing. No one can take your pain but Christ. If anyone could take your pain but Christ, what in the world are we doing here? Why are we tithing? Why are we meeting every week? Why are we wanting you in groups? Why are we wanting you to belong to this thing called new life? We can just be a social club if Christ isn't the answer. We're giving everything to this movement. I've given the last 17 years of my life to this place because I believe that Christ is the answer. I believe that empty philosophies of the world don't work. I believe that there's a reason that there are father wounds and it's this idea of sin. I believe that we've rebelled towards Christ and we have to draw close to Christ, confess our sins to him, confess our hurts to him and allow him to be the change agent. And I will tell you very practically, I've witnessed it firsthand. Nothing works beside it. Everything else is empty. You have to make a conscious decision to surrender that pain to Jesus Christ himself and draw close to God the Father just like Jesus did. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word. As we leave this place, I thank you for the fathers that are obedient to the call of, of biblical masculinity. We know that in culture they are truly a minority and so we celebrate those that are loving and serving Jesus and, and trying to love and serve their families and their sons and their daughters. On this hot summer day, God, break us, break us for the gospel. Break us for the truth. 
We love you. Make us more into your image. And we pray these things in your name. And everybody said, amen. Thanks so much for joining us today. We pray this message connected with you, and we hope it gave you another way to connect with Jesus and your New Life family. For more ways to get plugged in here at New Life, you can visit our website at www.newlifeaberdeen.org. Thanks again for listening, and have a great week.